It's lovely to be with you all on this Sunday. Uh, may I bring you greetings from my church in Exeter, Pinhoe Road uh, Baptist Church, uh, which is where, well, Jonathan was there for quite a few years. We moved there in 1996. And can I say thank you to you, uh, Abbey Church, for providing a welcome and a spiritual home for Jonathan and Caris. It's been great. There's mum and dad, my wife Helen is here as well to see them grow in faith, and uh, thank you for providing the fellowship and the context in which that happens. I won't embarrass you anymore, Sam, so, uh, well, I, I might do, you never know, it depends what tangents I want to go off at. One of the things that, as a Welshman, I have in my diary are certain sporting events, and it's usually the beginning of the year, February, March, it's the uh, international rugby season. And uh, I get very passionate, I get very excited. If Welshmen get towards a try line, I'm jumping off the set E and nearly hitting my head on the ceiling. And one of the things in rugby, of course, um, is that these days there's lots of cameras and technologies. And you often see referees doing this because they want to make sure that a try has been scored or not. And so you'll see the same event from different camera angles. It's the same event, but on one camera angle, you will see it and think, oh, I'm not too sure if a try has been scored. And then from another angle, it's quite obvious that the Welshman has scored against England. I mean, nothing could be clearer. There are some very strange referees who don't give Welsh tries, but we won't go into that. Different camera angles. Okay, same thing happening, same event, but slightly different in terms of the detail and the, that you're able to see. And the Gospels can be something like that. We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Can you think of them as four different camera angles? Um, there, is, there are very few, but there are some. All four Gospels give us an angle on. For instance, the feeding of the 5,000. That's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But usually, we've got three camera angles on different events from uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One of Matthew's camera angles, one of the things he likes to highlight throughout his gospel, uh, is made clear, for instance, from Matthew chapter 5 and verses 17 to 18, where Jesus, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then Matthew gives us examples of what it is that Jesus was getting at. And there are five occasions then when we read Jesus saying this, You have heard that it was said. And then Jesus quotes something. And then he follows it up by saying, But I say to you, it's not that Jesus was saying, no, the Old Testament got it wrong, and now I've come to correct it. But what Jesus was getting at was the interpretation upon the law that the Pharisees and scribes had put on it. You have heard it said. In other words, you've heard it taught, but I'm telling you, they've got it wrong, and here's the correct interpretation. And in some instances, Jesus hires the bar. He talks about adultery and what's going on in the heart. He's talking about murder, and it's what the hatred there is in the heart. So you have heard that it was said, and in those instances, the Pharisees and scribes, if you like, would lower the bar so that you could keep the letter of the law, but avoid what was going on inside. And so Jesus raises the bar. Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And the people are thinking, whoa. <laughs> and then 
throughout Matthew's Gospel, you, you have other examples. And the Sabbath is one of those. Because he would have been spoilt for choice if Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Because there were loads of rules and regulations concerning what you could and could not do on the Sabbath day. One of the ones that stuck in my head from years ago when I was first uh, reading and researching around this was that on the Sabbath day, you had to be very careful where you spat. Now, I don't know if this has ever been an issue for anyone here, but... If you spat on rock, that was fine. If, however, you spat on the ground or in the dirt or the dust, your spittle would form a little furrow. That was counted as ploughing, which counts as as work. So, if you were going to spit on the Sabbath day, check first. Otherwise, you might find yourself in trouble with the authorities. So, Jesus could well, you have heard that it was said, but... I say unto you. And in that sense, when it came to the Sabbath, Jesus appears to be lowering the bar from what they had heard that others had said. In Matthew 23, Jesus says that these Pharisees and scribes tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, which immediately precedes the story in Matthew's gospel, his camera angle of what we've just read from Luke, says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, in contradistinction to the yoke of the law that the Pharisees, my yoke is easy and my burden light. And so Matthew then uh, includes the two stories that we read from Luke. He writes up these two clashes between Jesus and the Pharisees on the question on the Sabbath. And Matthew, writing for a predominantly Jewish readership, people who knew and understood their Old Testament scriptures inside out, includes details and allusions from the Old Testament, in his version of it, that Mark and Luke are quite happy to omit. There's Matthew's camera angle. Mark's camera angle, well, Mark was written with a Gentile Roman Christian audience in mind, so Mark doesn't go into detail like Matthew does about the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. Mark was writing to a people who were beginning to face the threat of persecution. And he's keen to demonstrate to them that this actually is not to be unexpected. Their Lord himself encountered opposition. And Mark is keen in his narrative, in his camera angle on the life and ministry of Jesus, to highlight how it was that this opposition against Jesus began to build up. How it had this head of steam that culminated in his crucifixion. Throughout his gospel also, this is almost an aside with with Mark, Mark loves to highlight just how passionate a man Jesus was. He was a man of deep emotion. He wasn't a bit, you know, he wasn't very British. He didn't have a stip, he was more Welsh. (laughs) This slipped out, that did. 
he, he reveals Jesus as a man of compassion. I mean, when we, when we are told that Jesus told somebody not to tell anyone who he was, our English translations tend to tone it down. But the word is used of a raging war horse. We have to imagine Jesus picking someone up and saying, don't you dare tell anyone. It's not the image of gentle Jesus meek and mild with which I was brought up in Sunday school years ago. Mark's gospel is very stark. And here in chapter 3 and verse 5 of Mark, he says this, a detail that Luke omits. He looked around at them in anger, he says. Jesus' eyes are blazing as he looks around, daring them to say anything to contradict what he is now going to do. And deeply distressed, again, strong language being used, the strongest language Mark can find in the Greek, deeply distressed at this stubborn heart, said to the man, perhaps barked at the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. This Sabbath showdown was a key turning point in Mark's camera angle on the life and the ministry of Jesus. Because verse 6 follows. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. But we've been asked, or at least I've been asked, to preach to you from Luke's camera angle. So you get one and you've got two free, all right? You've got Matthew and Mark as well. Well, we ask ourselves, to whom was Luke writing? Well, that's easy enough. He tells us at the beginning of his gospel, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, Theophilus is a Roman name. In fact, Theophilus may well have been someone of some standing in Roman society. Because the title, Most Excellent, that Luke uses here, was not a title that you threw around lightly. It wasn't a form of cheap flattery on Luke's part. Many, drawing on examples of this title from contemporary uh, Roman literature, suggest that Theophilus may well have been a procurator or even in a, a governor in a province in the Roman Empire, the equivalent of a pilot somewhere else in the Roman Empire. And that may well, of course, account for the detail that Luke goes into in Acts when Paul is called to give an account of himself to Roman governors. Luke includes three such accounts. In Acts 24, it's the governor Felix. In 25 and 26, it's Festus and Agrippa. Things that Theophilus would have been very interested to read. Oh, that's how some of my colleagues had to deal with this. And you can imagine if Theophilus is indeed a Roman procurator, Luke wants to get into his hands the facts of the story of Jesus and the story of the church so that he knows what he's talking about when he has to make pronouncements or when cases are brought before him. Luke says, I want you to be sure of the facts. He wanted him, of course, to be reassured and established in his newfound faith. So I found myself asking, okay, so how do these stories, and Luke, interestingly, as we heard, includes other stories that you won't find in Matthew and Mark's camera angle. 
How would they have helped establish Theophilus in the faith? How would they have helped him if he was indeed a Roman procurator or or somebody of high standing in Roman society at a time when the heat was just beginning to turn up on the Christians? When the Roman authorities were beginning to realize that Christians weren't just a subsect of Judaism, which was a protected faith under Roman law, but it was actually something separate and which could, in fact, merit attack by the Roman authorities rather than through acts from the Jewish authorities. So it's an interesting period of time when Luke is writing his account. Things are beginning to get a little bit difficult when we're into the 50s and 60s of the first century. In chapter 5 and verse 30 of Luke, which presumably you've looked at just recently, Luke records the indignation of the Pharisees that Jesus should attend a banquet with a load of tax collectors and sinners. Something which any self-respecting rabbi would certainly not have done. In chapter 5 and verse 33, they question why Jesus and his disciples don't fast and pray as perhaps they should, as religious convention expected them to do. And Jesus goes on basically to claim that a new age had dawned with his coming. And that this new wine that he was bringing to people couldn't be contained in the old wineskins of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Luke then, in chapter 6, begins to illustrate something of what that means, the Sabbath. He points out in this story, these two stories, and in the ones later on in the Gospel, that time and time again, Jesus put the needs of people first. That compassion and understanding were better guides for observing the Sabbath than rules and regulations and the burdensome minutiae that they sometimes went into, as I've already mentioned. Was there something here, perhaps, that Luke wanted Theophilus to take on board? He's not a a Jew, so I don't think the the issues of uh, relating it to a Jewish understanding of the Scriptures would have been an issue for Theophilus. But as a Christian governor, could he not look for ways to temper justice with mercy? Could he not look at each case and have a heart of compassion beating within him, just as Jesus had demonstrated on a Jewish issue with the Sabbath? What about those issues that he was called upon to make a judgment on, where people's lives, their livelihoods, their families might well have been at stake? Now, that would not have been a Roman's first instinct, let's remember. This would would have been Theophilus' world turned upside down because the the Roman culture in which he would have been immersed admired the strong and despised the weak. It admired the healthy and despised the disabled. It honored the rich and exploited the poor. Kindness and mercy were not virtues to be encouraged in the Roman world. They were weaknesses to be despised. The Roman Empire had not been built on being kind and nice to people. It had been built on strength, on the power of the sword, in the administration of justice. It was not felt gloves that you wore, but iron fists. I can't help wondering whether Luke, by drawing attention to these stories of the Sabbath was pointing out actually compassion, especially to the 
disadvantaged. The vulnerable in society is something which as a Christian governor, he needed to ask himself, what does this mean? How can I do that within the the boundaries of my jurisdiction? How do I apply these things, these stories, into my life and work? Basically, we're having to do the same thing. Stories about the the Sabbath and the Jewish background might seem a million miles away from where we are. But we look, what's the principles here? And how can we take those principles of this heart of compassion and understanding and apply it in our own lives and worlds today? Our culture, our society, let's face it, is one that is... um, Ruled, dominated in many ways by a love of money. I've long been um, a chaplain at, a, at the Royal Devon and Exeter Hospital, an NHS Foundation Trust. I work there just one afternoon a week. And I've seen so many examples of where sometimes I don't think that was the best decision for that patient, but it was efficient for the hospital. Those boxes got ticked in our tick box culture. And sometimes as a chaplaincy team, we've sought to exercise something of a prophetic voice to those who will listen. Actually, in this circumstance, can't we, you know, I know what the rules say, but this person (laughs) needs a bit more understanding. I've sometimes spoken up for staff at the hospital, for the pressure to come in on a shift and do extra shifts, and you can see their own life under such pressure. And you think, actually, for an institution that's supposed to care for people, what about caring for its staff in an appropriate, humane, humanitarian way? I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a general election coming up. And the pitch from all the parties is this. Vote for us and you will be better off. If not in the short term, certainly in the longer term. The assumption of the culture of our society is that we want to get more and more prosperous. Nobody asks the question, why? I've yet to hear a politician quote what Paul says in Ephesians. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. Well, they'd agree with that, but must work. Yes, they'd agree with that. Doing something useful with their own hands, well, fair enough. What? That they may have something to share with those in need? Well, that's something different, isn't it? The invitation, ask God to prosper you materially so that you can be a blessing to others. The world's message is, you know, get rich so you've got more to spend on yourself. A very different motivation for work, do you not see in that? Lord, Thank you that I've got a job because it means I can be a blessing to other people. That's not driving our economy. That's not driving the Western world. But that's by the by. Let me ask you this. Are you in a position over authority over others in some way? In your work? Or in whatever context you find yourself? And it's a, a job where perhaps you have to so, make sure rules and regulations are observed. You look for ways of tempering those rules with mercy and compassion when people need it. Rather than just riding roughshod over them 
whatever the circumstances. What I'm trying to say is, a Sabbath story, how does that apply to us? What's the principle behind what Jesus is saying? And how can we apply that in our own lives, but also across the board, and be a radical prophetic voice in society? I want to think a little bit more generally as well. Keeping the Sabbath, why was it such a big deal? Why was it that it was over the Sabbath that Jesus so often clashed with the Pharisees and scribes to the extent that it triggered their decision? Right, we've got to get rid of him. We've got to kill him. This is more than just a let's agree to differ over this, shall we? The Sabbath issue for Jesus turns out to have been his life or death issue in many respects. It's the trigger point, which Mark especially, although it's there also in Matthew and Luke, highlight. You see, Sabbath keeping was a key test for just how sound and holy you were. I can remember when I was a teenager in Welsh evangelical culture, there were certain things that marked you out as being sound. And other things that marked you out as being unsound. And I was a bit of a rebel in those days, so I didn't turn up with an authorized version, but a New English Bible. If I was feeling less mischievous, a revised standard version. But do you know what? Helen's friends were worried about her going out with such an unsound chap. They're still a bit worried, but not on the point. A bit late now. Let me take you back to Jeremiah chapter 17 and verses 24 and 25. But if you are careful to obey me, declares the Lord, and bring no load through the gates of this city on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy by not doing any work in it, Then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this city with their officials. They and their officials will come riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by the men of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, and this city will be inhabited forever. It's a picture of God's blessing, of God's prosperity being given as a gift to Jerusalem. This is a picture of the messianic days, when Jerusalem will be in the Premier League city amongst the nations, when the kings of other nations will come flocking to Jerusalem, not in order to besiege it, but to pay homage to their God. This is a prophecy of Israel's messianic deliverance and redemption. And they read that passage in Jeremiah and saw that it was linked with how they kept the Sabbath. Uh, Being a good, sound evangelical church, I doubt if you have many speakers quote from the Apocrypha. Bear with me. You may have heard of the book of Maccabees. And the Apocrypha are books written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. We don't consider them to be scripture, but they do help fill in some of the gaps in terms of our understanding of what people were thinking. It was a tumultuous time. If you, you know, there were Judas Maccabeus and you know, Handel's Oratorio. It was all built in that time when the Maccabees rose up in revolt against the Greeks. Much blood was shed. And in the first book of Maccabees, it's recorded how some 1,000 Jews let themselves be slaughtered 
men, women, and children, rather than profane the Sabbath by defending themselves. From another contemporary record, that of Josephus, he records how the Roman general Pompey was able to erect earthworks in the siege of Jerusalem, unhindered by its defenders. Why? Because it was the Sabbath. Now, until I came to research this sermon, I didn't know that. Obviously, I had not read those commentaries 30-odd years ago when I first looked at this passage. But suddenly, ah, that's why it was such a big deal. Because if you have a tradition for which people gave their lives, over which blood had been spilt, it became one of the defining marks of what it meant to be a Jew at the time of Jesus. It meant being faithful to the heritage of those who had given their lives in previous generations. If you look back at the the origin of the Pharisees, they were called Hasidim. And they were passionate in believing that whatever happened to them, they would keep the law and the word of God. There is much to be admired in their roots. The trouble is, as so often, it became fossilized. Life died and it became a fossilized tradition and therefore Jesus clashed with it. But when I looked at the Hasidim, I thought, oh, there's a lot of parallels here with what we as evangelicals believe passionately about the scriptures and how we want to defend it and guard it and keep it. Let's not become like Pharisees, however. But you can understand now why people saw what Jesus said about the Sabbath, what Jesus did on the Sabbath, so outrageous. Indeed, when he declares the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he was claiming an authority over the Sabbath that nobody, nobody, no rabbi ever, ever would dare to make. No wonder they were so outraged by what he said. No wonder their blood boiled with this carpenter from Nazareth daring to make these claims and doing these things. No wonder they went out and spoke to people they would not otherwise speak to, the Herodians, the polar opposites of the Pharisees, and find common cause. We've got to get rid of this man. There was a lot at stake in the Sabbath controversies. Their very distinctiveness as a people of God. Their hopes for the future. Blood of martyrs. But how does all this apply to us today? I don't know this church and congregation well, obviously. I don't know whether the The Sabbath and what you understand by it is a debatable issue. What range of opinion there may be. Let me give you a little personal testimony and story on this. I was brought up in a quite strict, what you might call, Sabbatarian home. There were certain things I was not allowed to do on Sundays. Couldn't go out on my bike. Couldn't do this. Couldn't do that. And I wouldn't do homework on the Sundays. When I was at university, I wouldn't do university work on Sundays. And when I began my ministry in Tonopandi, in the heart of the Welsh Valleys in 1983, I was a fairly strict Strabatarian, supporting especially the Keep Sunday special campaign after Margaret Thatcher decided to try and open the shops on Sunday. I grasped on the local spa supermarket down from our chapel, 
were open on Sundays. I had the local rag on to me. Excuse me, Reverend Bayless, what do you think about members of your congregation who pop into the spa on Sundays to buy a pint of milk? Of course, they made that story up, but they were trying to catch me out. I remember uh, I was preaching on the Ten Commandments, and each commandment got four sermons. So it was a whole year's worth of preaching, basically. I preached uh, from the um, Mosaic context, you know, where it occurs in Exodus or Deuteronomy. Then the second sermon would be how the prophets, whether Jeremiah or Isaiah, then developed and applied that teaching. Then I'd have a sermon um, from the Gospels, and then finally a sermon from the Epistles, looking at the whole range of the, how the, the commandments, all ten of them, ran through Scriptures. And the first two I preached on the, on the, on the Sabbath day were, were rooted in the Old Testament. I can remember somebody in the church saying to me afterwards, oh, thank you, Alan, you just confirmed that we're right to be so strict with our boys on Sundays and what they can and can't do. And I gave a, a, a wise pastorly nod. Then I came to study the issue in the Gospels. And I was reading a book edited by Don Carson entitled From Sabbath to Lord's Day. And as I studied that, I thought, oh dear, I've got it wrong. And I moved from a strict Sabbatarian position to a Sabbath principle position. And so the third sermon on that series, I had to stand before my congregation and tell them I've changed my mind. The same lady came to speak to me after the sermon and said, thanks, Alan. (laughs) So... um, a journey of understanding in my own way and discovered that, for instance, in Revelation, when it refers to the Lord's Day, it's not referring to the Sabbath at all. We've got no reason to think why it should be. When you think about it, especially uh, as we get towards the end of the first century, most of the converts were Gentiles, many of whom were slaves. Could they, keep the Jew- could they, could they say to their slave owners, excuse me, please, can I have Saturday off? No way. A couple of things the early church did very well without was a, well, three things, Sunday schools, church buildings, and the Sabbath. <laughs> and yet it was one of the most successful missionary um, epochs in the history of the church. Now, I know you've got a building project very much in, in your mind, but bear that in mind. Don't ever forget, and we're engaged in looking at our buildings in Exeter, um, uh, uh, you know, not as much as, as, as you are, but because you're having to build from scratch, we're talking about changing our buildings. But never, ever forget, the church is people, first and foremost. Any building project must serve the purposes of the God's kingdom and his heart towards people. But I want to dig a little bit deeper again. Because these stories, whether from Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and there are some Sabbath controversies in John, but of a different type, Asking the question, well, what is your theology of God? What is your God really like? You see, what do we learn of God from these passages? I remember years ago somebody asking this question, is your God the God of the cornfields? Based upon this very passage in Luke 6, Matthew and Mark. And we've seen it in the other passages that Luke has presented, that they were there waiting to catch Jesus out, looking to see what he would do and say, aha! 
Sometimes you come across people who've got a theology of God that you call the theology of the cornfields. They have a picture and image of God who's just looking to catch you out, who's waiting for you to trip him. I caught you! Yeah? And it's a very harsh, domineering picture. There's no compassion level grace in it, although those things may be acknowledged theoretically. They have this image of God who's the God who's behind those Pharisees who just waiting for you to trip up, say something wrong, do something wrong, say, right, I've got you. I remember wincing some years ago as I heard a mother speaking to her son. And uh, this is, by the way, not, not, not my family now, all right? So we're okay. And... Um, he, he presented some challenges in terms of behavior, shall we put it like that. And her often stock comment, I realized, was to say to him, who's watching you? And the answer would come, God and Jesus. Do you see why I winced? That boy was going to grow up with an image of God who was there watching him like a hoard for when he's naughty but was never encouraged to think of that God as a God of grace and of love who would give him the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance and the fifth chance. Yeah, we could go on, couldn't we? Because this is the God of grace. This is the God that lies behind what Jesus was doing in his clashes with those Pharisees. The God that the Pharisees knew would have sanctioned what they were doing, looking to catch people out and pull them up sharp and dust them down with a right rollicking and telling off. Whereas Jesus had a different attitude. I like to think of it as the God of Zephaniah, chapter 3 and verse 17. I haven't got it on the screen for you. I remember learning this in song from the authorized version. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. And it goes on to speak of the God who is mighty to save, who takes great delight in you, who will quiet you with his love, who rejoices over you with singing. Does your God rejoice over you with singing? Is that the picture of the God that you have in your head? Is he the God of the cornfields? Mean Or is he God of supreme, astounding, over-the-top, ridiculous grace? Who rejoices over you with singing? About 20 years ago, I heard somebody speaking on this passage, and they were new grandparents. And um, the grandmother especially was, and I remember the grandson's name, it was Zach, an American family, Zachary or something. And she'd go to his crib, and he was sleeping. Ah, oh. go again. He's awake. He's awake. He's awake. And she would just pour out this pent-up love and excitement. I thought, what a wonderful picture of God. Does, does your God, when you wake up in the morning, go, oh, no, we've got to watch this one. Or does your God, look, she's awake, he's awake. There's a day we can share together and rejoice. I think you get the point I'm trying to make. But that to me is what, whatever else you go away with from this morning, from a story about Sabbath, and you know, we can have lots of controversies, and if you want to read that book from Carson, well, best of luck if you've 
you know, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy read. <laughs> That's the one that made a difference for me. But in terms of understanding who is the God I know and love behind all of this? That's the question you can ask of any story in the Gospels, of course. What does this teach me about what God's like? Go away from this morning, I trust, with a renewed and renewing vision of this over-the-toply gracious God who delights in you. When you come to this table, when you take bread and wine, will you hear God's Spirit whisper into your ear, I love you so much. I delight in you. Receive my grace again.